All right, as I said, we're beginning a new study series this morning. Um, this morning, uh, we will be in Mark chapter 15. So if you want to take your Bibles and join me there, this is not an expository study of the book of Mark. Obviously, I wouldn't be beginning at chapter 15 if it were. Uh, we'll be in a different passage each week because we're looking at a different character each week. I don't yet know how many weeks this will cover. I have certain ones in mind already and planned out that I want to cover, but God might add to the list as time goes on. Uh, so you be in prayer for me as I prepare these, these sermons. Uh, but this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 15. So when you've found it, uh, why not join me in a word of prayer, and we'll ask for God's help in our study this morning and in future Sundays. Well, Father, we, uh, uh, if we are yours, uh, or I'll speak on behalf of those who are yours uh, here this morning, uh, we do thank you for the faith that you've given us. We have come to see uh, through your Holy Spirit and through Scripture that that faith is not natural. Uh, to put all dependence on someone we can't see, someone we've never met physically ourselves, someone who's just written about in Scripture, uh, to put all faith in that person for eternity, to put all faith in that person to make us right with you, well, that had to be a gift from you. That had to be a heart change that you performed within us. And so uh, we praise you for, for that gift, for that change. And we do want that faith to grow. Uh, we want it to be what you deserve. Uh, you and your son deserve for people to follow you who have no reservations whatsoever. People who are so convinced of who you are and what you've done and what you promise that we'll walk through the fire with you. We won't doubt. We won't question. We won't hesitate. We won't back down from any threats. We will proclaim the truth about you anywhere, in any circumstance, to anyone. We'll do it proudly. We'll do it confidently. That's the faith that you deserve from us. I confess this morning that mine's not there. And so I lift up this prayer that you, through your spirit, through your word, will develop my faith to that point, to the place where Christ gets what he deserves from me by faith every moment of every day of my life. And I pray that you will use uh, these, these, these real people, these biblical characters to teach us, maybe to expose certain things in our lives that, that are not as they should be, maybe to teach us things that we can add uh, to our lives in, in practice, uh, maybe to change the way we think, the way we look at you and the way we look at life. Father, there's, there's so many ways I can see you working through this study, um, and I know you're not limited to my ways, and so I just beg you to work. Work for our growth for your sake. Again, so that your son will get what he deserves at all times from his people. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a whole lot in God's word that is not clear. And if you're not saying it out loud, you're probably thinking, amen. Uh, I was having a text conversation with a high school friend just this past week, and he was remarking about watching current events, seeing what's going on in our nation and all around the world. And he made the statement, it just seems to me that the whole world's being run by Satanists right now. And that has pushed him into the Word of God, and he's been in the book of Revelation lately trying to figure out where we are on that whole Revelation timeline. And you know his conclusion? I don't get it. <laughs> That's what he told me. I don't get it. 
And frankly, I didn't argue with him because I don't get it either. Uh, I don't know where we are on God's timeline as we approach the, the end times and the events that he has shared about those end times. How close are we? I don't know. When you read the book of Revelation, uh, is he promising events there that are literal or are they figurative? Are God's people going to go through all of that tribulation or some of that tribulation? Or are they going to be spared from all of that tribulation? Well, there's some people that are very confident uh, in their understanding of that realm and their explanation of that realm. They're very confident of it, but I'm, I'm not one of them. And that's not the only realm in which I get confused either. I mean, face it, we're dealing with a God who is on a whole other level from us creatures, especially from us sinful creatures. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So any person who claims that they can or they do understand everything about this God is the epitome of ignorance. They are in the depths of ignorance if they make a claim like that. Now, Having said that, there is much for us to understand about God. There is a lot that he has revealed about himself. There's a lot that he wants us to know. There's a lot that he has explained to us because he wants us to understand what he's saying to us. And at the top of that list of things that he does want us to know, that he does want us to understand, that he has explained clearly, at the top of that list is the place of his son. There, there is no doubt whatsoever, it is crystal clear that God wants all attention focused on his son. So whether you're thinking about faith, as I've talked about already this morning, or praise, or obedience, or service, or desire, God the Father wants all of that going to his son, Jesus Christ. And he's proven it throughout history, hasn't he? When you look back, at the last couple of weeks, we talked about the incarnation. So when you talk about the, the incarnation, God the Son becoming a human being, and you talk about his life, and you talk about his death, and you talk about his resurrection, all of that was carried out on purpose to display God's glory in Christ to get God glory through Christ. That was his intention. That was his, his purpose, all attention on Jesus. And then... After Christ had finished his work, the Father exalted him to his own right hand, gave him the name which is above every name, made him head over all things to the church. For what purpose? So that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So once again, let me just say it all over again. That much is crystal clear. We are to be obsessed with Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. We are to be obsessed with Jesus Christ. That's why so much of the New Testament is devoted to commands and instructions on how to honor the Son. Because he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. And he who honors the Father does it by honoring the Son. So the whole New Testament is devoted to commands and instructions on how God's people are to honor the Son of God. The New Testament tells us how we're supposed to imitate the Son, how we're supposed to obey Him and serve Him and proclaim Him. And every person who is in Christ by faith wants to do those things. 
That's one of the, the, the clearest marks that someone is a child of God. That God is in them and they are wanting the same thing God wants. So when you find a person who is obsessed with Jesus Christ and wants to imitate Christ and wants to serve him and obey him and trust him and proclaim him, you're seeing evidence that God is within that person and the desires of both are parallel at that point in time. But the sad thing is we struggle in that area, don't we? We struggle a lot. We struggle acting out those commands with glad obedience, acting out those commands with consistent obedience. It's hard for us, isn't it? That's partly because the standard that we're trying to achieve is a standard of perfection, and we're not perfected yet. We'll talk about that several times through this whole study. We're trying to to get up here, and we all fall short of the glory of God. We did before we were regenerate, and we still are. Our standing before God has been changed, but we're not completely sanctified yet. So we're trying to achieve something that, that is unachievable for us at this point in time. We have another problem, too, and that is there are lots of enemies standing against us. There are spiritual enemies, and there are human enemies that want us to want to keep us from giving Christ what he deserves, from being obsessed with Christ, with our actions. There are enemies outside of us, and there's an enemy within us as well, and that is our own old sinful nature. So again, it's, it's hard for us to, to give Christ what he deserves, even when we want to give Christ what he deserves. So having said all of that, I want to take a few weeks and share something that has been a little help to me through the years. Again, not that I'm perfected and I'm saying to you, well, just come follow me. I've got it. And as long as you stay right behind me, you'll be fine. I'm not saying that at all. But where I have seen success in the past in times of growth, this has been part of the tool, the mechanism that God has used to do it in my life. I've told you many times before, I I really enjoy Christian biographies and autobiographies. I I just really love that. When you go look at my library, there's a whole bookshelf dedicated just to books about the lives of professing Christians down through the ages. I like that because if they're written well, you get to see real thoughts and real desires and real feelings. You get to see how people handle trials and tribulations. You get to see them make good choices and bad choices, right actions and wrong ones. You get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly in a well-written Christian biography or autobiography. You get to see people sometimes acting like strong believers, and then other times they're failing miserably. And I don't know about you, but that helps me. That helps me a lot. It helps me to see that I'm not alone in my struggles. There are many other people who have gone through the same things and are at this moment in time. That's a big help to me. It helps me to learn from their mistakes. Maybe I, maybe I read about something that they did, and then that's in my mind, and I avoid that in the future myself. It helps me to be inspired by their successes. And through all of that, what gives me the most help is watching God in that life under that life, behind that life, watching God being who he is, doing what he does in the life of that particular person. So we're going to look at some biblical biographies. And I think I told you a second ago, you've probably seen it in the bulletin already. It's up here in front of you now. I'm just calling these portraits of faith. 
I'm calling them portraits because we're not going to learn everything there is to learn about each one of these people. We're basically going to take a snapshot of their life and we're going to see what was given to us about that life at a particular point in time, okay? These are people who saw Christ or they heard about Christ and they believed in him and they tried to live for him. These are not going to be the heroes of the faith, some of which Brian read in the call to worship just a little bit ago. These, this is not Abraham and Moses and Samuel and David and Samson, those, those big names in Scripture. That's, that's not going to be who we look at. These are going to be some of the lesser-known believers who lived with Jesus or who lived after Jesus, both. And my goal in this is inspiration, it's motivation, It's to give you illustrations to strengthen your devotion to Christ as we look at their lives, as we look at their devotion to Christ, okay? So I want to set up the first one before I tell you who it is and we get into Mark chapter 15. Let me set up this first portrait, this first person, with a present-day illustration, okay? So I want you to picture an incumbent Democrat representative from one of the most liberal districts up in the Northeast, okay? Before this person was in political office, he was a very successful attorney somewhere like New Haven, Connecticut. So successful, wealthy, before taking office. This man has been in political office for over 20 years at this point and has never been seriously challenged by any conservative opponent, Not even once. This person always votes with his party. This is the kind of person who is very often interviewed by the media for the liberal perspective on a particular issue in society or in Congress at that point in time. This person has been funded and endorsed by every progressive group that's out there. Okay? Got that picture in your mind? And I'm not thinking about an exact person. It's just an illustration. All right? Now... Suppose one day that person shows up on stage with Donald Trump, with Donald Trump, as the keynote speaker at a pro-life rally. The question is, what happened? What would have had to have happened for that person to change so radically? to change sides, to change views, to change messages so radically. What would have had to have happened to that person? And what would happen to that person for doing that? What would their political party do to them? What would their constituents do to them? What would their family and friends do with that kind of a radical, sudden change given who they had been and who they're with and what they're doing now at this point in time? Well, enter Joseph of Arimathea. That's who we're looking at first. Joseph of Arimathea. You've probably heard the name before. I'm sure you have. You've read the name before many times. But I want us to look at his life this morning in particular. And we're only going to look at Mark's account. All four gospel writers talk about this Joseph and give us information. We're only going to look at Mark's account, and I'm going to fill in some of the other information that we get from Matthew and Luke and John, okay? So Mark chapter 15, if you're there, look at verse 42 with me, if you will. I'm going to read down through verse 46. Mark writes this, 
Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, that Jesus was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, Joseph, bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And when he laid him in the tomb, and he laid him in the tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Okay, so who is this guy? Who is this man who shows up in Scripture only as Jesus is hanging on the cross and after he's already dead? We have really no information about Joseph before that point in time. So who is he? Well, there's a lot of information here. And again, I'm going to give you information from uh, the other writers as well. So if you want to jot down, I'm not going to put it all up on the screen. You just want to jot down on the back of your bulletin these, these basic pieces of information. Maybe you can give it more thought as time goes forward. Mark tells us here that Joseph was from a town called Arimathea. If you've got a map in the back of your Bible, go look at it this afternoon so you can get your geography straight. But this is a town that was located about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. So perspective from here to the airport in Greensboro, pretty much, okay? So what that tells us is this this wasn't a, a town very far away from Jerusalem. It was a town that was a whole lot closer to Jerusalem than some of the other places that Jesus traveled, right? When you think about the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and areas like that, they were much further away from Jerusalem than this little town Arimathea was. And this town was kind of on the way to some of those other places where Jesus traveled a lot back and forth, coming and going in his ministry. Luke called this city a Jewish city. And when you study anything about it, you realize this is an older Jewish city as well. You'll recognize one name associated with it. This is the city where Samuel was born. It was also the city where David came to see Samuel. So it's been known, it's been prominent in its own ways for for quite a period of time when you get to the life of Joseph of Arimathea. A Jewish city, meaning it was mostly inhabited by Jews. And when that's the case you know that it is thoroughly Jewish in its social life, in its culture, in its religious life, in its education. Everything that's going on in that city is very, very Jewish. Probably very few outsiders, non-Jewish, Gentile outsiders, probably very few living, choosing to live in that city. And if they had chosen to live in that city, they had probably converted to Jewish life, Jewish religious life at this point in time. So what it tells us also is Joseph could easily have met Jesus there in the past. Could have met him there or could have heard him teach there in the past or could have heard about him from his disciples being sent out to the Jewish villages and towns to minister on behalf of Jesus at some point in time. So it makes it very understandable, very likely that that, that Joseph had some kind of exposure to Jesus, maybe from his own hometown, Arimathea. There's another way, though, that, that Joseph may have known about Jesus, and it's because, as Mark says, he was a prominent council member. 
Now, you know what Mark means by the council, right? This is usually a reference to the great Sanhedrin. It's that council of men in Jerusalem that is composed of 71 people. You had the high priest at the time, then you had another vice chief justice, and then there were 69 other members, usually scribes and elders from other Jewish communities, towns, villages, who came and made up part of this Sanhedrin. They acted kind of like our Supreme Court. So they were the final authority on all civil or political or religious matters and decisions throughout all of Israel, kind of like the Supreme Court. Each city had its own lesser council made up of 23 members. They heard local cases, but when they got stumped, when they couldn't reach a decision, it would be passed up to the Sanhedrin, and they were left to make the decisions on these matters. These guys met nearly every day in the temple in Jerusalem. There were a couple of holidays that they had off, just like we do in our own uh, civilization, but they met nearly every day in their own special place in the temple to do the work that they did. So we don't know how long Joseph had been on the council, but at this point, as Mark is writing and this scene that we're watching, Jerusalem has been Joseph's home away from home for some period of time. Again, we don't know how long, but Joseph was spending practically every day in Jerusalem to do the job that he had been given to do. Now, being on that council tells us something about Joseph. It means he was certainly well-educated. That was a requirement for anyone to be on the Sanhedrin. They had to be well-educated in the Torah, first of all, the, the Jewish law. But then they also required them to have a, a pretty fair amount of, of education in other areas as well. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If they're going to be hearing cases on all different kinds of matters, farming to medical situations to education to whatever it might be, they need to have some kind of education, some training in those areas. And so that tells us Joseph must have been a very educated man. The Sanhedrin members were also required to be modest and strong and courageous and popular. And Joseph must have met all of those qualifications and then some because Mark describes him as being prominent among the council members. He wasn't just on the council. He wasn't just one of the council members. He was prominent, which means he stood out in a very positive way. When you looked at all 71 men, Joseph would have kind of been in a class by himself. He would have been viewed as more highly liked. He would have been viewed in a more honorable way, like here they are and here he is. We think more of him than we think of the rest of them. That's what Mark tells us about Joseph. He stood out as a greater among great ones, is, is another way we could say that. Matthew tells us, and again, we don't need to turn there, but Matthew tells us Joseph was rich too. He was a rich guy. How rich? Don't know. Where he got his wealth from? Don't know. How he spent his wealth? 
Don't know. We're going to see in a little bit how he spent, spent it at this point in time. But up to this point in time, we don't know whether he was very generous and liberal with his wealth. I have a feeling he might have been since he was described as being prominent, but I have no evidence of that. Did he help people with his wealth? Did he buy his way onto the Sanhedrin? We don't know anything like that about him other than the fact that he was a rich, a wealthy man. Now, Mark tells us, we read it in verse 43, that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And that ought to remind you of someone else that we talk a lot about around Christmas, and I think I mentioned a week before last as well. You remember Simeon, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus into the temple, and the old man was there and saw Jesus and got so excited and took him up in his arms and blessed him? Well, it was said about Simeon that he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel which was another way of saying exactly what Mark is saying here about Joseph. Just like most Jews, Joseph believed that that promise of a future Messiah. Knowing the Old Testament, knowing what they had been taught, they knew that Jehovah promised that someday he was going to send a man to be the king and savior of his people. That descendant of David who was going to show up, he was going to sit on David's throne once again and never leave David's throne And by being there, he was going to rescue Israel from all of their national and international enemies. He was going to bring peace and prosperity to the nation once again, a king like they had never had, and a righteous, everlasting king. Joseph believed that. But when Mark says he was waiting for the kingdom, Mark is telling us Joseph more than believed that promise. It's not just that he believed that's a factual promise from God, but it it influenced Joseph's life. Every day, pretty much constantly in Joseph's life, he was looking for this kingdom. To start, he was looking for this king to show up. He was anticipating this king in his own lifetime. So Joseph would have gone about his work as a part of the Sanhedrin. He would have gone about his family life. He would have gone about his travels with one eye open all the time. Am I, look, am I seeing the king? Am I seeing the one who's going to bring the kingdom back to Israel? That's what I want. Where is he? I want to find him. I think he's, I think he's coming. I think he's close by. This is what we're being told about Joseph, okay? Now, more information. Luke describes Joseph as a good and just man a good and just man, which tells us he was not a politically driven man. He didn't do things to increase his political stock. He didn't do things to make sure that he got to stay on the council for longer and longer and longer. That was not his motivation. He was not politically motivated. He wasn't selfishly motivated. This was a man of virtue. This was a man who was concerned with with doing what was right and fair and helpful to other people. That was how he was known. That was his character, his his nature as people watched him in his life. And that nature showed up in something that Luke said about him as well. Luke said Joseph was not consenting to the decision and the deed of the council. Got any idea what he was talking about? Joseph was not consenting to the decision, the decision and deed of the council. Which one was that? the decision and deed of railroading Jesus. Remember, they made that decision. we got to get rid of this guy. We're going to take steps to get this thorn out of our flesh. 
And evidently that was not just a decision that one made or two, but the council made this decision together. And Luke is telling us that Joseph was not in agreement with that decision. He could see it wasn't right. He could see that's not a fair decision. Joseph could see that not only was there no evidence to convict Jesus of the crimes that they were laying on him, but he could also see the council was breaking all of their own rules to get it done. I think we talked about this here in the past. When you look at the steps that the Sanhedrin, the leaders took to get Jesus convicted and taken to Pilate and and executed by, by the Romans, they broke all of their own legal rules to get it done. I mean, you think about them and the scheming that they did behind the scenes to to make it happen. You think about them paying bribes to people like Judas, bringing forth and coaching false witnesses to say what they wanted them to say against Jesus, not the truth, but what they wanted them to say. You think about them meeting at night, which they never did, and meeting somewhere other than in the temple, which is where they always met to make their decisions. All of these things, Joseph knew, that's not right. It's not fair. In fact, it's just flat out illegal. So when they made this decision to frame and railroad Jesus and and have him killed, Joseph was not in agreement with that decision. Now, we don't know how far he took that disagreement. We don't know if he voted openly or spoke openly against the rest of them, or he was just passive and quiet, but he was not in agreement with it. We don't know for sure. We're not given that information, okay? But he didn't. He he didn't like it. He he wasn't in agreement with this, okay? There's another reason, and I would say a bigger reason, that Joseph didn't consent to that decision. It wasn't just because it wasn't right. John tells us that Joseph had become a disciple of Jesus. He He wasn't just a good and a just man. He wasn't just waiting for the kingdom of Israel, the the kingdom of God to to come back to Israel once again. But this is a man who had become a disciple of Jesus somewhere in the past. Now, when we say disciple, don't get the wrong picture in your mind. It's not like those 12 who left everything to go travel with Jesus and live with Jesus every day of their lives for the next three years. Not that kind of a disciple. Joseph was still a member of the Sanhedrin. That was his day job. He was living in Jerusalem and Arimathea. That's where he was staying. So he didn't leave everything to go travel with Jesus like those other 12 men that we're usually talking about. But somewhere in the last few years, probably the the years of Christ's public ministry, somewhere during that time, he had learned from or he had learned about Jesus to the extent that he believed what he was hearing. Joseph believed that Jesus was Messiah. Joseph was convinced that Jesus was that king, that that savior for Israel. Jesus was the one that Joseph had been waiting for. So he, he started following him in his mind. He started following him in his heart. He believed and he believed in him. He became a, a follower, a student of Jesus Christ, okay? So that means he never would have agreed to use his power as part of the council to railroad Jesus and have him killed, not as a disciple of Jesus Christ, not as a true disciple of Jesus Christ. He couldn't do that, okay? Now, that's not all John tells us. He was a disciple of Jesus Christ, but John also says he kept his faith secret 
because he feared the Jews. He was a disciple, but he was a closet disciple. He was a secret disciple. He didn't come out with that openly. He didn't broadcast that. He didn't make it known to anyone else. Why? Because he was scared of the Jews. And whenever the phrase, the Jews, is used, it's talking about the leaders of the Jews. He's a council member. He's part of the Sanhedrin. First and foremost, he's scared of the other guys. He's scared of the other 70 men on the council with him who think differently about Jesus than he does, who want to railroad Jesus, who want to have Jesus murdered. Well, what if he comes out and says, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. What could that cost him? We know, we've seen in Scripture how they intimidated and threatened people who claimed association with Jesus. They would have people kicked out of the temple and kicked out of the synagogue if they knew they were supporting and proclaiming something about Jesus that they didn't believe. And so, what would they do to him? What would they do to Joseph? I mean, he's a member of the Sanhedrin supporting the man they think is a blaspheming heretic. What would they do to him if they knew that? I mean, they could ruin Joseph in a, in a heartbeat, couldn't they? So evidently, what John is telling us here about Joseph is that his position, his, his reputation, his privileges, his relationships, his wealth were too important for him to risk openly following Jesus. He seems to have been more concerned with what he would lose than what Jesus deserved from him at this point in time, right? Sound familiar? See again why I like Christian biographies? Because they make me feel a little bit better about, my, about myself. Because I've been there. I don't know if you have or not, but I've looked a lot like Joseph at certain times in my life, maybe even recently. And so looking at lives like Joseph's makes me feel a little bit better in remembering there's no perfect believer. Oh yeah, there's, there's some great things about Joseph here. We're going to see greater things in just a second. But Joseph was no perfect believer. I mean, he was scared to make it known that he was related to Jesus, associated with Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And I've done the very same thing, okay? So this is why we're looking at this. Maybe this is more for me than it is for you. I don't know. But here's the thing about Joseph. His faith didn't stay secret forever. Look back at the text with me, if you will. Look at verses 42 and 43 once again. What did he do? Well, Mark writes, now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. That's what he did, okay? Did it on preparation day. Now, now what is the preparation day? It's the day that they got prepared for the Sabbath. Sabbath was Saturday. Preparation day means Friday. So what Joseph did, he did on a Friday, but not just a Friday. He did it on, I would say, the Friday, the, what we call Good Friday, right? That's the day we're talking about here. This is the day that Jesus had been tried and beaten and abused and crucified all through the morning hours, and then he had hung on that cross in darkness from noon until three in the afternoon. That's the day. This is, when, this is when Joseph is doing these things that Mark is talking about and we're looking, about, looking at right here. This was still before the Sabbath began at 6 o'clock on Friday evening, still before 6 o'clock, but after 3 p.m. So we've got a window of three hours here. 
This is, this is the period of time in which Joseph is doing the things that we're talking about now, between 3 and 6 p.m. on Friday. What did he do? He went into Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And Mark said it took courage for Joseph to do that. Coming and taking courage. Meaning what? Meaning Joseph showed some guts in making that move. Even though we just got finished talking about the fact that he had hidden the fact that he was a disciple of Jesus for a, for a period of time. We don't know how long, but he had, he had taken steps to keep that secret. Now he's showing some guts. Now he's showing some strength. It would take strength for a disciple of Jesus Christ to make this move at this point in time. And you say, why? What's so gutsy about it? Why did that require such courage or strength for Joseph to go and make this request of Pilate? Well, there's several reasons. And let me try to lay these out for you very, very quickly. The first reason is because things didn't usually work that way. Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin council, Jewish a Jewish council going to Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor of that region, and asking for the body of an executed criminal, things didn't happen that way normally. The Romans usually showed no respect for the dead bodies of criminals. None. Sometimes they would even leave them on the cross and let them rot so that birds would come and eat the bodies on the cross. That's the the amount of disrespect they had for criminals who had reached that point of of execution. And even if they didn't do that, even if they took them down, they would take them down and they would throw them in a common grave for criminals. And often that grave would be left open so that animals, scavengers, could come feed on those bodies even though they're off the cross, they're down there in the ground and things can still get to them. Why? We don't care got no respect for them whatsoever. Let them dispose of them for us. That's how they were often treated. And even if they didn't throw them in an open grave, a lot of times they would throw them out onto the burning trash heap. Gehenna, the fire, the landfill that was always burning. A lot of times the, the bodies of executed criminals would be tossed out there on the fires and let them incinerate on the fires over time. If they ever did release a body, it was typically only to an immediate family member. So this was normal. This was common for the treatment of executed criminals. Now here's Joseph going to Pilate, and he's requesting something that is so unusual. What's the risk in that? It might make Pilate perk up and think, what in the world are you doing? Why? What are you up to? And that might lead Pilate to pass that along to the rest of the Sanhedrin. Hey, guys, you know you got one of your members that showed up over here a little while ago, and this is what he was asking for the body of that guy that you wanted killed on the cross? And if, if word got out, what's that do to Joseph? So, you see, it took some guts. It took some strength for Joseph to go to Pilate himself and make this very unusual request of Pilate concerning the body of Jesus. It opened up a can of worms that Joseph had been trying to keep closed for some time at this point in time. But it also required courage because the relationship between the Sanhedrin and Pilate wasn't good, especially not on this day, right? Now, the Sanhedrin always openly resented Pilate. And the reason is obviously, right? They never respected Pilate because Pilate was a foreign occupier. 
He was a Roman official executing or exercising authority over Jewish people, Jewish territory, even Jewish matters. And so they resented him. Most of Israel resented him. And and they weren't shy about that. They were very open about that on a normal basis. But on this day, you think about what happened on this very day, this, this morning between the Jewish leaders and this man, Pilate. They had pushed him and they had pushed him to get him to order the crucifixion of Jesus against Pilate's own conscience and even against the fears of Pilate's own wife begging him to have nothing to do with that man. They had pushed him so much that Pilate went ahead and he gave in even though he didn't want to do it. And now here comes another one of those guys, another one of that that council, that, that Jewish council. Here comes another one of those guys asking me for another favor a few hours later. How do you think he would react to that? You think he would just be happy to see Joseph come walking in and, oh, sit down, let's have, let's have an afternoon snack together and what's on your mind? I'll, I'll be glad to help you. I don't think so. I think by this point in time, Pilate is irritated with these guys and would want nothing more to do with them whatsoever. So for Joseph to go to him and make this kind of a, a request took a lot of guts. But it also took guts because of the ramifications if Pilate did grant his request. Think about it. Pilate says, okay, you can have the body. How can Joseph take that body down from that cross and take it to the tomb without being seen? Again, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He has never voiced his discipleship of Jesus, never said, I'm a follower of Jesus. He's kept that secret on purpose up to this point in time. And now he's going to go out there to that cross and he's going to take that body down off of that cross physically himself and get it to that tomb on his own? This is a prominent council member. Jerusalem is full of people at this point in time because of Passover. There are people coming and going from Jerusalem like it's an anthill at this point in time. Someone certainly will see him doing this for the body of this convicted criminal and certainly pass word back to the Sanhedrin of what Joseph is up to. What will happen? He'll pay a great price for that. I mean, the one thing that he's been trying to avoid up to this point in time, paying a price for following Jesus, would be practically guaranteed if he got found out doing what Pilate let him do here, taking the body down off the cross, getting it to a tomb. But now, none of those possibilities, or I should say probabilities, right? None of them stopped Joseph. The one who had gone to such effort to follow Jesus in secret was now going public with his faith. He was doing it bravely, and he was doing it urgently. Why so urgently? What's the big deal about the next three hours? What's the big deal about six o'clock? I need the body now. I got to do something with the body right now. What's the big deal? Well, I want you to listen for a second. I guess you can turn if you want to. But Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23 I want to just kind of break into the law of Moses here. 
Moses is recounting the law that God gave to Israel. He's recounting it just before they go into the promised land to start living there day by day by day. So he's going over all of it, every piece, every part, every, uh, every issue, every type of category of, of matters that they will have to deal with. Moses is laying it all back out for, for his people once again. And part of what Moses covered has something to do with Jesus hanging on that cross. Now listen to this. God's law, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Got it? That is the law of Moses. Can't leave, it on, can't leave that body hanging on that wooden tree cross overnight because it defiles the land by God's law. So Joseph goes to Pilate, please let me have the body of Jesus because he wants to get it down off of that cross before nighttime. So I can see how someone could see Joseph's request as just a conscientious act by a Jewish judge who was trying to follow God's law. A man who knows the law, he is is just, he is good, he is fair, and so he doesn't want God's land to be defiled by Christ's body hanging on that cross overnight, so he wants to get it down before nightfall, okay? So I can see how people... Who, who, who want to get away from the truth about Joseph might reason that way about his actions. But if that's all that Joseph, Joseph was up to, just getting it down off the cross so the land wasn't defiled, why take that body and put it in your own tomb? Why go to that length in what you do with the body once you get it down? I mean, just go dispose of it, get rid of it. And, and if this is just about keeping the law, then where were the rest of the Sanhedrin wanting to keep the law too? I mean, wouldn't they want to be doing the same thing at this point in time? And the answer is no to all of that. Joseph's concern was not the defiling of the land, and neither was the rest of the Sanhedrin's. All they cared about was getting rid of Jesus and humiliating him as much as possible in the process. And if that meant leaving Jesus on that cross through the night and all of the rest of the next day, they didn't care. Mission accomplished for them. But Joseph didn't share their desires or their conclusions. In Joseph's mind, Jesus hadn't committed any crime that was deserving of death. So he was already being dishonored in the execution itself. I'm sure Joseph hated the fact that Jesus was crucified as a common criminal who had broken laws in Israel and broken laws in in the Roman Empire as well. I'm sure Joseph hated the dishonor that was coming to Jesus by him being on that cross. And every minute longer that Jesus was left on that cross was one more minute for someone else to view him as being cursed by God, which Joseph couldn't stand the thoughts of. And I have to think, we talked a little bit on, uh, in Sunday school as Kevin's going through the book of John. We talked a little bit about that placard that Pilate put over Christ's head. Remember that? This is the king of the Jews in three different languages, so everybody would understand it. I have to think someone like Joseph, looking at that cross, believing what he believes about Jesus, 
seeing that sign hanging over his head, this is the king of the Jews, over a dead body. For Christ's body to hang up there even one minute longer under that mockery, under that kind of ridicule, under that kind of shame, probably drove him crazy. He just could not stand the thoughts of that kind of dishonor being given to the one that was his master. And so if, if he wasn't taken down before Sabbath, think about this. If, if he wasn't removed from the cross before 6 o'clock, he couldn't be removed from the cross until the next evening at 6 o'clock because nothing could happen on the Sabbath. You couldn't do any work whatsoever. And so get him down now before 6 o'clock or it's another 24 hours for Jesus to be dishonored, hanging on that cross, a dead body, the king of the Jews for all the Jewish world to see as they're coming and going from Jerusalem. I think that's what's in Joseph's mind. He didn't understand everything that was happening that day. He didn't know everything that God was doing in the death of Jesus. All he could think about was how his master was being dishonored. And if he could do something about that, if he could do something to stop that shame, if he could somehow give Jesus some honor himself, even honor to his dead body, Joseph was going to do it no matter what it cost him in doing it. And did it cost him? Sure it cost him. Mark chapter 15 again, it says, verse 46, Then he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen. So before he got him off the cross, Joseph went somewhere, deliberately, physically, went somewhere and bought not just some bed sheets, but fine linen to wrap Jesus in. Now, I mean, think about it. He's dead. You're going to lay him in a tomb. What happens to bodies as soon as they die, they start to decay, they start to decompose, they start to rot. So whatever you wrap him in, it's going to be ruined very, very quickly. So just go get some old bed sheets and wrap him up in that. But for Joseph, no, uh-uh, no, uh-uh. I want to do something that honors my master. I want to do something that shows great respect for my master. I want to treat him in the way I think he deserves. And so I'm going to go out and buy the best so that I can use the best to show him the honor that I think he deserves. And on top of that, what did he do with the body? He laid it in the tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. Dug out of the rock. Hammer and chisel. This isn't just red clay. This is rock. Okay? And Matthew tells us this tomb was Joseph's tomb. Not just any tomb. This was Joseph's tomb. And Matthew said he had hewn it out of the rock. This is a tomb that Joseph dug. Joseph chiseled this cave in the side of the rock himself. And also we learn it was a new tomb. So, the way things worked back then, you put a body, a dead body, into a tomb. In time, the flesh would rot off of those bones so that all that was left was bones. The bones would be removed from the tomb, buried somewhere else, so that a new dead body could be brought in. So tombs would be passed down from generation to generation of families and used over and over and over again. Not this one. That had never happened in this tomb. It's new. And I'm guessing, I can't prove it, but I'm guessing Joseph had no intention of anyone using this after Jesus. I venture to guess 
Joseph was dedicating his tomb to Jesus permanently. Now, this raises all kinds of questions about Joseph and this tomb, questions that don't have answers. Questions like, did, did Joseph literally dig this tomb by hand, or did he just pay somebody else to do it for him? And if he did dig this tomb, when did he dig it? Just recently or a while back? And why dig yourself a tomb in Jerusalem when your hometown is Arimathea? So there's all kinds of questions that people have asked about this tomb and the significance of it and what Joseph had in mind when he dug it or bought it. And we don't know the answers to those things. What is certain is that Joseph, wanting to honor Jesus, gave Jesus something of his own. He gave Jesus something that had cost him. At the very least, that tomb had cost him money, but it's very possible that tomb had cost him blood and sweat, a whole lot of labor, a whole lot of effort. And the honor that Joseph gave Jesus in giving him that tomb was an honor that Joseph would give to no one else. And even more than that, think about this. In Joseph's mind, by putting Jesus in his own tomb, Joseph knows he's going to be publicly connected to Jesus from that time forward. People will walk past that tomb and they'll say, whose tomb is that? Well, that's Joseph of Arimathea's, but the body of Jesus, that, that, that guy who claimed to be Messiah and was executed for it, it's his body that's in there. So from that tomb, that point forward, the man who had tried to keep his discipleship secret is now doing something that he knows will connect him to Jesus publicly from that point forward. That's, to me, that's, that's brave. That's gutsy. And it tells you something about Joseph and what's going on in his mind right now. This is what he wanted for Jesus. And this is what, what he wanted for himself. He wanted to share this association with Jesus from that point forward in his life. Very different than before. Now this faith, this secret faith is being manifested openly. The biography of Joseph of Arimathea. So what's this mean for us? I told you we're going to look at these portraits for help for us, okay? So I want to put three things up here on the screen for you. These are, I think, lessons that we can learn from this information about Joseph of Arimathea. Here's where it begins. Number one, it is possible to be a believer, but a very quiet one at times. I'll say it again. It is possible to be a believer, but a very quiet one at times. Now let's get personal. I kind of mentioned this just a few minutes ago, but let me, let me ask some questions now. How often do you get disgusted with yourself because you don't give Jesus what he deserves? For me, that's a regular thing. I'll just confess it to you. I don't know if you struggle in, in, in that way, but there are times when I watch myself and I know this is what Jesus deserves from me and this is what he just got from me or, or didn't get from me. Sometimes it's unintentional. I didn't mean to, but then I, I see it after the fact. Other times it's intentional. It's on purpose. I know Jesus has commanded this, and I didn't do it. I know Jesus has forbidden me to be involved in something like this, but I went ahead and did it anyway. Times when 
I chose not to use my resources to serve Jesus with because I wanted to keep them for myself. Times when I didn't protect the reputation of Jesus when I had a chance to do that. Times when I should have stood up to defend his honor when he was being defamed and mocked and laughed about and I kept quiet while, while it was going on. Just blended in with the crowd to spare myself something that might be uncomfortable or it might cost me something that is more valuable in my life. You? Guilty? I am. There's, there have been times where I have watched myself and I have wondered, can I even be born again when I'm acting like that? I mean, really, can, can faith really be inside of someone? Can the Holy Spirit really be inside of someone and I be that passive and that cold and that inactive for Jesus Christ? I mean, I've thought that quite a few times. Maybe you have as well. So for me, hearing about Joseph's struggle is a real encouragement. Kind of weird to say that, isn't it? I mean, Joseph had a lot that he could have used to support Jesus and serve Jesus, but he didn't do it for a while. Maybe even for years. I don't know for sure how long he was a disciple, but for some period of time, he could have, and he chose not to. And I'm not glad that he kept his faith secret for a while, but I am glad that God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, described Joseph as a disciple when he was being secretive. He was a secret disciple. That's the word of God. And that makes me glad. Okay? It tells me that I don't have to doubt God's work even when my work is so poor. Right? There's times when my, my works are awful. They're non-existent or what is there is it's wrong in every possible way. And I start to doubt myself and who I am and my standing with God, but based on what God says about Joseph when he was acting the same way, I don't have to doubt God's work in the life of his child. He who began the good work of sanctification in his people is keeping up that work, and he will complete it even though we're scared and passive and quiet and self-serving at times. It also tells me that I should be very careful judging others when their works look poor. And I've got to be very careful with that. It's so easy for us, isn't it, to look around and point out what someone else is doing or not doing and, and even start to come to a conclusion about their standing with God and their relationship with God. Joseph is a check on that for me. With God describing Joseph as a disciple, a secret one, but a disciple, and then seeing what does come out of Joseph later, it's a check on me in judging others when their works look poor. Again, folks, remember this. There is no perfect disciple. You think about the 12 who were closest to Jesus. One of them betrayed him. One denied even knowing him. And the other 10 abandoned him for their own protection. We know 11 of, those 12 God, 11 of those 12 disciples were true disciples, but they were being truly selfish sometimes. So Joseph reminds us we're being perfected as his disciples, being perfected, but we're not complete yet, not at any point in this life. So number one, it's possible to be a believer 
but a very quiet believer at times. Here's the second thing I learned from Joseph. The more a disciple looks at Christ, especially his suffering, the faster he abandons the secrecy. You follow that? A disciple is secret, quiet, passive, not wanting to be exposed. But when he starts to look at the suffering of Jesus Christ more and more and more, he's pulled out of the secrecy by that. Now, again, I don't know when Joseph became a disciple. I don't know when Joseph became convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But he was still silent. He was still passive. Joseph was still incognito with his faith through all of the injustice of the Sanhedrin in those days and those hours leading up to Christ's crucifixion. Joseph didn't agree with the Sanhedrin, but he didn't confess, at least not publicly, not openly, what he really believed about Jesus. But after watching the crucifixion, after listening to what went on in it and all around it, after thinking about the crucifixion, Joseph couldn't stay passive and silent any longer. The suffering of Christ in some way gripped him. It it, it changed him. It, It emboldened him. Watching the suffering of Jesus Christ on that cross stirred up a whole new devotion in Joseph. It made him very jealous for Christ. It made him generous to Christ like he had never been before. All he had was no longer his to protect for himself, but his to give for the honor of Christ. After the cross. After watching watching the suffering of Christ. Spurgeon said this, The emancipated spirit loves the Savior for the freedom which he has conferred upon it. It beholds the agony with which the priceless gift was purchased, and it adores the bleeding sufferer for the pains which he so generously endured. Amen. I agree wholeheartedly with that. Again, I don't don't know how much Joseph understood about the crucifixion. I don't know whether Joseph linked together atonement for his own sins with what was happening on the cross at that point in time, but I do know he beheld the agonies of Christ and he adored the bleeding sufferer as a result of it. That's obvious. That that stirred up his faith with with a whole new heat. And let me say this. If you believe if you are really a disciple of Christ, but you've, you've, you've gone cold for a while, you've, you've gone passive, you, you're quiet, you're, you're self-serving at this moment, then go to the cross. There's, there's no other place for you to go. Go to the cross, look and listen and think. And if you are one of his, eventually repentance will come. It will. Warmth for Christ will return. You will want to get busy for the bleeding sacrifice once again. If the cross doesn't pull someone out of their secrecy, likely there's no faith there. Likely they're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. So two, the more a disciple looks at the suffering of Christ, the faster he will abandon the secrecy. Here's the last one. God is sovereign over every manifestation of our faith. Joseph makes this abundantly clear, or I should say the life of Joseph. So, once again, Joseph was secret. No, he he did not consent to the injustice of the Sanhedrin against Jesus, 
But obviously, he didn't oppose them strongly. I mean, possibly, he didn't even voice his disagreement to them. Well, let me ask you this. What if he had? What if he had opposed the Sanhedrin strongly? What if he had stood up and loudly and forcefully proclaimed how he felt about what they were doing? What if he, a prominent member among them, when he heard them plotting to bribe Judas, to pay off Judas, to betray Jesus, what if he had stood up and said, no, man, we're not doing that? What if he had done that at Annas' house or Caiaphas' house, the, the wee hours of the morning before this? What if he had stood up among them then when Jesus was before them and they're bringing false witness after false witness in to testify against him? What if he had stood up and he had said, there's no evidence against this man and we're not going to railroad him like this? What if Joseph had gone to Pilate earlier not, not as we read up here, but he had gone to Pilate before the crucifixion. He had gone there as a member of the Sanhedrin, and he had said, they're lying to you, Pilate. Truthfully, we found nothing that this man has done against our law that is worthy of death. What if he had done that? What if Joseph had wielded his considerable influence on the council to defend Jesus? Would the arrest and the trials and the conviction and the execution have happened as they did if Joseph had stood up for Jesus earlier? God could have brought him to repentance earlier, couldn't he? And that's what God does through his Holy Spirit. He brings people to conviction and he brings them to, to their knees where they, they abandon sin and they turn around. God could have brought Joseph to repentance earlier. He could have motivated him to break his silence and start acting like a disciple of Christ a week or a month before he actually did. But God didn't do that. God permitted Joseph to stay quiet in his sin until the wicked had done to Christ all that God intended for them to do exactly as God had prophesied it to be done. And what about Joseph's great change after the crucifixion? Why was it significant that Joseph's change came about then? That he did what he did to honor Jesus then? Well, what if Joseph had waited a few more days to declare his faith openly? And then, what if he did it by leaving the Sanhedrin, joining those disciples, and starting to preach the truth about Jesus? What if that's the way he had come out, not with the burial of Jesus' body? What if he had started that open discipleship a week after the death of Christ? not the day of. Well, can I remind you of a verse that you know very, very well? Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 9 says this, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Isaiah prophesying about the suffering servant, the coming Messiah, the Savior for God's people. And he said, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. That was 700 years earlier. Over 700 years before Joseph did what he did, God promised that his son would be buried with the rich. 
And now you've got Joseph, the rich Arimathean council member, with a personal tomb near the cross and a courageous, insistent, urgent move to bury Christ's body in his tomb. What is that? That is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9. That is the fulfillment of God's prophecy, God's promise, happening exactly when it needed to happen, not a minute late. And folks, when we consider this and we look at our own lives, again, I'll just say it again, we get disgusted with ourselves sometimes, don't we? We get disgusted when we don't do what we know Christ deserves from us. Then we'll repent We'll, we'll act a little more faithfully for a while. We'll be obedient to more of his commands and, and follow his will for our lives until we fail again. But at all times, when we're secret, when we're open, when we're failing and when we're faithful, God is sovereign over our actions. God is allowing the sin. God is motivating the repentance. And God is using all of our decisions and all of our actions to accomplish His perfect purposes for the glory of His Son and the eternal good of His people. Joseph's life is teaching us to rest in God's absolute sovereignty. We don't have to despair when we fail, and we shouldn't be proud when we succeed. God is accomplishing what really matters in and through both of those, our failures and our successes. Joseph is just one more proof of what God said back in Isaiah chapter 46. God says, I have declared it. I have purposed it. I will also bring it to pass. I'll bring a bird from another country to do what I want to be done. I'll bring a a man from a far country to do what I want to be done. We saw in the book of Jonah, God brings a fish from somewhere to do what he wants to be done. And he did it with Joseph too. Joseph was the bird. Joseph was the fish. Joseph was the storm. Joseph was the army. Joseph was the man who was prepared and called and changed and motivated at just the right time by God to execute God's counsel and to do God's pleasure. And if you are a child of God, so are you. So are you. Same way. So try your hardest to give Christ all that he deserves from you. This is not a a blank check or an excuse to say, well, nobody's perfect, so don't even bother to try. No, Christ deserves our greatest efforts at absolute perfection. Our greatest efforts to do everything that he deserves and desires and demands for us to do. He deserves that, so try to give it to him. But rest in what God has decided and God has declared and God has purposed and God is doing with your life, both the obedience and the sin. Rest in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for recording stories, not stories, recording real lives. Not just that Joseph lived, but that your spirit moved somebody to write down the facts about Joseph's life, the good and the bad. Thank you for that. What a help it is for struggling believers after Joseph. What it is, what a help it is for people who want to give Christ what he deserves, but we're scared. We're afraid. We're afraid of what we'll lose. We're afraid of what people will say about us, what they'll think about us, what what they'll do to us, what harm they'll bring to us. We're just like Joseph. 
But we're so glad that even though that's what comes from us naturally sometimes, that also what's in us is what you're doing supernaturally. That you have granted us faith, that your Holy Spirit lives within us, that the potential is there for repentance and obedience, that sanctification is going on, and that you will finish what you started in every one of your people. We thank you that the story continued with Joseph from being a secret disciple to being someone who went way out on a limb, someone who went very public with his faith and his honor for Jesus Christ, even with his actions, even with his wallet, even with his efforts, and not just for a day, but permanently thereafter. Thank you that we see the change that you bring about in your people because it tells us that's what you'll do in us as well. We want to rest in you, in your sovereignty, in your work. We don't want to rest so much that we don't try, but we want to try our hardest, knowing that even when we fail, you're sovereign, you're using it, you have this magical way of working together our obedience and our disobedience to bring about the purposes that you have already laid down. So we, we want to trust you. We want to give your son what he deserves. Use the life of Joseph. Use these lessons to help us in that effort. We praise you for that hope. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.